Hello everyone and welcome to the All The Anime Podcast. It is Friday the 17th of April 2020. We are back with another podcast. I am Jeremy Graves and I am joined as per usual by Mr. Andy Hanley. This is through the looking glass. Uh, you really confused me when you said Friday because it's actually Thursday when we're recording this. And then I remembered... Oh, don't, oh, yeah. don't give it away! <laughs> I, I, sometimes people need to peek behind the curtain, see the wiring under the board. But I was very confused for a second. As, as someone who is already struggling with what day of the week it is, that, that almost t- took me over the edge into completely complete confusion <laughs> well i suppose now i need uh, i should uh i should ask our esteemed guest dr jonathan clements are you confused as to what day it is currently i totally am i didn't realize it was thursday <laughs> <laughs> but, but don't you think... hearing it... <laughs> yeah but uh, but isn't that a, a, a thing uh, i mean I, I agree to you know skype someone and then like two weeks go by and i don't really notice because i'm just i don't have any weekends you know, um, if, if my son is here, then I'm watching him full time. And if he's not here, I'm working full time. And there's no kind of break up to the week. So you're not sitting there going, oh, it's Saturday. So I've got to do something on Monday. Every day is the same in this uplit beige Ikea hell. Yeah, it, it, it is. It is really weird. I, I've also seen people like debating slash flat out arguing how many weeks into this we are now. People are like, oh, no, this is week four. No, no, it's definitely week five. And like it's 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 been we've reached the point now where people don't actually know how long they've been kind of in their own homes, which is kind of a little bit worrying. And I also think it's very interesting. The Guardian this morning identified something that they're calling Zoom fatigue which is where people are in a state of constant loneliness, but also constant social interaction at the same time, <laughs> uh, which I think is very... I, I, I've I, seen people around me suffering from that. I would just argue that's called Twitter, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> that's why I don't have Twitter. There we well, go. One of the reasons why I don't have Twitter, the other is is that Jerome does all the all the fan baiting for me on twitter i don't need to do it myself <laughs> d- d- does jerome have a twitter account at this point jerome from manga we're talking about by the way everybody i, th- I think every now and then he kind of goes off and and you know proclaims himself to be a hermit and then something will wind him up and he'll come back in and it's all about people who wear leggings again or you know <laughs> thing, an- annoying things that fans have done so you know I, I let i let jerome you know lead on there and i just stand back and, and read what he does uh Boy, do we have some stories about some, some of the things that Jerome's put on Twitter back in the day <laughs> from previous lives. But we'll, we'll touch on that another point. Uh, Jonathan, th- to begin with, I wanted to ask, how is life for you currently? Because it's obviously been a, a couple of weeks since we last spoke to you and we got the, the whole shebang on how everything has been. So how have things progressed for you in this lockdown well, world, I guess? Well, terrifyingly, it doesn't feel like it's been two weeks since I last spoke to you. It feels like it's been two days. But, you know, somehow... I've tr- translated 70 pages of a book since I last spoke to you. Um, I'm just coming to the end of the of the Healthy Japanese Drinking Guide, uh, which is going to go up, um, go after the publishers next week. And uh, yeah, everything's nice in Finland. It's um, they're they're actually re- they're closing down the um, they're, they're opening up the borders again between Helsinki and the rest of the country. Oh, so uh, Helsinki's no longer going to be going to be walled off. Helsinki's no longer walled off, which is a real annoyance because there's a lot of people up here in the north who don't like soft southerners from Helsinki, <laughs> and and we'd rather prefer it if they stay behind the the, the wall in, in in what they call the third ring road. But you know, I'll, I'll live and let live. We'll let a few of them up if they're bringing you know yeast and bagels. And how is a how have things been when it comes to say like relations with Sweden and such? Because I remember you were saying last time there was a lot of concern over how how they were playing ball with with the situation. I can't remember how much I said to you last time about it, but the Swedes have been super, super... Stop me if I've said this before, but the Swedes have been super overconfident 
about uh, the degree of social distancing required. And the reason that they gave for it originally was that 50% of them live alone. And if you're a Finn, you just say, well, that's because no one likes Swedes. Um, <laughs> but actually, the thing is, is that they are, uh, you know, they're very kind of yuppie culture. There's lots of, you know, student grants and, and uh, um, uh, government housing and so on. So everyone's got their own flat. And unlike, say, the Italians, they don't live three generations to a house where granny can catch coronavirus. So the Swedes were kind of overconfident about that. Uh, they, they've had a, a thousand infections now, I think, and they're not very happy. about. Oh, wow, was it a thousand deaths? I, I get confused. But whatever it is, the Swedes aren't looking good at the moment. And, um, uh, and the, But the, the Finns are, you know, as smug as Finns can be that they've handled it so well. I'm in central Finland, and for the last two days, there have been zero new infections. So... Uh, everyone's very pleased about that. What happens in a week's time when, you know, everyone can, you know, wander around a bit and cough on each other is, is another matter. But um, it's looking pretty good. And and up in the north, you know, there's still the issue with the Lapland border. But as I said last time, that's a very political thing that cannot be shut down because then the reindeer herders get angry. and You don't want angry reindeer. Yeah, it was interesting, actually, because in some feedback that, that we received from the podcast, a lot of people found that actual note that you said about the reindeer herd is just a fascinating fact, because it's not something that we learn about over here. So it's just a genuinely fascinating fact that something like that is so free oh, well, and open right. and can well, be such a, such a big political issue. Since this is a an anime-related podcast, I'll tell you a bit more about the history of Lapland then. Because <laughs> Let's the, do it. <laughs> yeah, because the thing is, is that the Sami, the indigenous people of Lapland, used to live all over Fenno-Scandinavia. Um, they used to they used to extend all the way down as far as Oslo, and a lot of the old Viking legends about kind of people of the mountains and you know weird magic stuff are actually about the people that they called Finns, which are actually the Sami. They used to call them Laps, but Lap is uh, an ethnic slur, meaning someone at the edge. So you can't say that anymore. And so, uh, so the Sami people, they're in Norway, they're in Sweden, they're in Finland, and they are in, uh, you know, um, in the north of the uh, Kola Peninsula up in, um, up in Russia. And uh, because they are reindeer herders, they're migratory, they, they cross over the border. They kind of wander around. And uh, because they're an indigenous people, everybody's tiptoeing around all of the oppression that has gone on for the last 400 years, like, you know, taking away their magic drums and forcing them to be Christians and, and you know, trying to convert them to Christ uh, Christianity and so on. So um, as a result, there's, there's, a, there's a very strong Sami presence up north. Um, they've got a flag that's much better than anybody else's flag. Um, uh, their language is mental. Um, and they've got their own, you know, uh, I think they have a kind of a form of autonomous government up north, but it's not, it doesn't have, you know, binding powers over a whole lot. Um, but uh, when the Finns talk about Finland, they tend to talk about it as a country that's divided between Finns and Swedes. There's 5% of the people here still speak Swedish as their first language. They tend to forget the Sami. Um, and the Sami, uh, and, and there is, uh, you know, a, a push for Sami autonomy. But for the Sami to have autonomy of the area that they rule, they would have to get it from Norway and Sweden and Russia and Finland. And then they'd start to say, well, you know, we used to own a lot of land down towards the south as well. So, you know, maybe we could have that too. And then it all kicks off. I don't know where to go from there. That, that's genuinely yeah, quite fascinating. Yeah. I think we've probably lost all the, we've lost all listeners now on what is suddenly the Finland podcast. But, you know, there you go. <laughs> So I guess to get back into the anime sphere of things, then. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I no, promised no, no, I wouldn't do that. I promised I wouldn't do this this time, and here we are again. Yeah. 
So let's double back a little bit, Jonathan, because after the last episode you're on, we had a a particular question come in, which I think we should just sort of get to right away because it'll be a nice continuation. It it was in relation to you talking about Gunbuster last time. Oh, yeah. We got a comment on Twitter from Jamie Sprong who said, is Jonathan Clements aware that Gunbuster was re-recorded from scratch and mastered in 5.1 on re-releases? Because this was in relation to talking about your favourite anime and how it would never get released again and such. For for those of you that were banging your head against the table while I was talking about this last time, yes, we we were talking about the fact that the music and effects track for Gunbuster has been lost. Um, And uh, Jamie Spong, who I believe is Spong Bros, at Spong Bros, said, was I aware that they have, in fact, uh, re-recorded it with with the original cast? And yes, they have re-recorded it with the original cast, but only to make a shonky um, movie edit that was released as Gunbuster versus Diebuster. I think if you even wanted to buy it, you had to buy the awful Diebuster along with it and some kind of toy in a box. Um, and um, I have not seen the the, the Gunbuster uh, remake. I, you know, I'm, I'm a sad fanboy, and I want the six original video episodes, you know, remastered. I don't want something that's been cut down. Somebody on Amazon.com was saying that half of the OAV is missing from the feature i find that very hard to believe because there isn't if they took half of it out then there'd hardly be any space but but they say that there's a lot of um character development that's been cut there's a lot of um um scenes that don't really make sense anymore and so i'm i'm sticking to my guns and i'm waiting for that six episode version of the whole thing not this this feature abomination and don't get me started on diebuster <laughs> I mean, I feel like you're basing me into content there, Jonathan. But, um, no, no, but, I'm not. <laughs> but, but when it comes to Gunbuster, this this remake specifically, yeah, that that was Andy. What was that like? Ninety minutes, two hours, maybe? Uh, yeah, yeah, that was like it was just over ninety minutes, I recall, as opposed to what was it like six half hours for the the original OVA. So they they have cut out a pretty pretty hefty chunk of the content there. Mm, because I, I actually think that is the only version of Gunbuster I've ever seen. And I did wonder, and in hindsight, it makes a lot more sense now as to why it felt like things felt a bit bit disjointed. Yeah, it's, a, it's a cursed production, Gunbuster. It really is. Um, at some point, I think I'm going to write an article about it for the Anime, U- Anime Limited blog. Um, because uh, next month we've got something going up about Wings of Oniarmis, where I talk about some of the behind-the-scenes shenanigans that went on on that film. And they and Gynax went off and made, they made Gunbuster afterwards. And, and, and they thought that Gunbuster would be easy for them, but actually they had all of these problems, mainly with dealing with the press and with the expectations of fans. Um, and so they had trouble putting Gunbuster together. It was one of the first anime released in America as anime, you know, in, in, rather than a hidden import cartoon. It was the first release for US renditions. Uh, there's lots of argument about the quality of the translation. People are very cruel about the translation by uh, Ledoux and Yoshida of the first episodes of Gunbuster, but I think it's really good. Um, so you get into trouble arguing about that. And uh, then critical it, house are out of interest. Well, um, there were people saying that they took liberties with the script. Um, but I, and I can't think of any examples right now, but I do remember there have been times when I've been teaching about translation and I've shown the first two episodes of Gunbuster because I think the Ledoux and Yoshida script was really, really good. 
um, with some of the decisions it made. Because, you, you know, you have problems, very basic problems in Japanese, like how you handle the way that people address each other when everybody has an honorific, even if you're, you know, really good friends. Hmm. And that can cause all kinds of trouble in subtitling because you jar people out of subtitling. Um, when you and, and we've got a character whose name is basically Honorable Big Sister for the whole thing, and you know how do you handle that and how do you do it? So, so anyway, so so there's there's all of those issues with Gunbuster. Then when it was released in England, it was released by Kiseki, and their version was just awful, um, and uh, it was came under particular fire um, for for being what looked like a straight port, a straight port from from video, even though it was on DVD, and and then um, they because of the BBFC, they actually stripped out a little bit of the gratuitous nudity which everyone was looking forward to um so you know so there's that as well so so gunbuster has had a really you know really really bad luck over the years and of course <laughs> and, and 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 now it's not one of those things that you can just you know press a button and say okay well here comes the blu-ray you've got to go through jump all these hoops either going for the feature which i've already expressed my disapproval of or you know build it from the ground up and and the thing is, is that why would you want to put that kind of effort into a twenty-year-old show, thirty-year-old? It's a thirty-year-old show now. Um, you know, there are weirdos like me who who love it with all their heart. Um, and historically, it's fascinating because basically, Voices for a Distant Star is so much of a gunbuster homage that it's practically actionable. Um, so it's really important in the history of of, of anime for me, anyway. Um, but I know hardly anybody knows what it is, uh, or indeed cares. So you know, it's one of those one of those things that will only really be an issue to the historian. So speaking as someone who has only seen the Gunbuster feature version, then mm. how does Die Buster fit into all this? <laughs> I told you not to get me started on Die Buster. <laughs> The thing, well, Die Buster is a much later uh, retread of it, and the, the, I find the characters really irritating. And the the idea, I mean, spoilers, really, but the idea is is that Gumba, uh, the Die Buster is set around the time of uh, when the uh, Noriko and um, Kazumi, is it Kazumi? I've forgotten her name. When Noriko and Big Sister come back from their big, long mission, which has taken them a very, very long time to get home, there's this very moving moment where kind of lights light up on the um, earth below them, saying, welcome home. And there are all kinds of exciting things about this message. Because, I mean, Torin Smith, for example, told me, because he was living with Gainax at the time they made it. That's why they named Smith Torin after him. And he said that uh, the idea was one of the letters is backwards in welcome home. Um, and if you are a sad nerd like me, you know that Jung Freud writes that letter backwards when she writes letters. So it suggests that maybe Jung Freud is waiting for them on the surface. And, and Torrance said, well, now, that's a mental fanboy theory. Why would you say that? He says, according to, uh, to uh, Hideaki Anno, the idea was, was that because the girls have been away for so long, they've been away for thousands of years, basically you've got people on Earth trying to work out what ancient Egyptian would be for welcome home as a little gesture to them. Um, and I give you all of that preamble because the way that life looks on Earth at that time is something that exists entirely in your mind when you watch Gunbuster. You know, there's something banging away in the background at the moment. I don't know. Yeah, so, somebody, somebody is building a fence next door to me, which is uh, <laughs> excellent. <laughs> <thank> you, <laughs> all right. 
okay, as long as it's not my audio, I don't care. So, um, so anyway, so so you know, the the you build up this image in your mind of how how could life have possibly changed on Earth? What could Earth possibly be like? What kind of amazing kind of Oni Armist style world is waiting for them? And you never have to see it. And in Die Bus, so they go, here it is. This is what the world's like. You've still got you know schoolgirls. They still trip over stuff. You know, robots. Uh, and it's such a huge letdown <laughs> um, because the idea is, is it's kind of it happens at the time you know when they, when they get back. Um, and I, I think that kind of um, it dilutes the message of Gunbuster. Really, it, it kind of takes away some of the sense of wonder and the slingshot ending that you get at the end of Gunbuster. That's just my personal opinion. Maybe there are people who've wandered into Diebuster and think it's fantastic. Um, but um, for, as, as a Gunbuster fan, I felt it was perfect in and of itself. And by saying, "Oh yeah, here's a bit more," it kind of you know ruined it. Having said that, on the Gunbuster Sound Collection. Um, there's actually uh, a, a set of, I think, 26 episode um, announcements for what Gunbuster would have been if it were a TV series. Hmm. Um, and so, and I've never worked out, and I've never actually, I've, if, if I see Yasuhiro Kamimura again, I'll have to bloody ask him. I've never actually asked anyone from Gainax this, but uh, I've never worked out whether that was just a joke that they shoved onto the audio collection or whether they did genuinely beat out what uh, a 26 episode gunbuster tv series would be because it expands it into a, obviously a 13 hour story and there's there's all these kind of extra bits um alluded to in the kind of you know coming next week on gunbuster we go to mars no, they, haven't, they haven't been to mars what's, what's the mars thing um <laughs> so um so that's really interesting as well um but uh but yes as far as i'm concerned with diebuster it's it's entirely unnecessary and it just feels like they're just you know pumping out more product however one final thing on that on that note the reason that Gunbuster and Wings of Oniarmis are such an interesting pair for discussing Gynax is Wings of Oniarmis is Gynax trying to be auteurs and very serious and meaningful. Whereas Gunbuster, um, as, as Carl Gustav Horn pointed out on um, one of the comments in the uh, Anime Limited blog a couple of weeks ago, Gunbuster is a product. Gunbuster is them saying we're going to do something fun and it's for fans and it's going to have all these kind of in-jokes in it. And then, and, and that's why they had trouble with the press because the press is saying, why is that giant robot skipping for the skipping <laughs> rope? And, and for them, it was just like a throwaway joke. Like, you know, hey, this it's like a Rocky training montage. So we've got him, you know, shadow boxing and we've got him jogging next to a man on a bike and we've got him skipping. But now they had to explain themselves to people. And they're like, it's just a kind of throwaway joke. We're not we're not taking this seriously. And of course, people like me come along and take Gunbuster really seriously. Um so, um, so yeah, lots of fun to be had with Gunbuster. I don't know why I should keep promoting this show on your podcast because Anime <laughs> Limited is never going to release it. So um, I should probably. I mean, some might say, Jonathan, it's our grand plan to try and make Andrew license it in some way. Oh yeah, because that worked with Momotaro, didn't it? Let's keep going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's sitting at home right now in his pants, going, "Oh, for God's sake, just get onto the other stuff." <laughs> Uh, Andy, what about you? Have you seen? I guess I was going to say Die Buster specifically, but what are your thoughts on Gunbuster overall as well? Um, yeah, I'm I'm trying to remember whether I've ever seen the original OVA version. I think I've probably only seen the compilation film version myself. Um, and you know, I, I love it for what it is. Um, but yeah, I'd definitely be interested to see it in its fullness. I mean, Die Buster, I like, but I am totally on board with the idea that it didn't need to be Gunbuster two at all. Like, it would happily have stood alone as its own thing. 
that kind of is completely divorced from that. It, it, it adds nothing to that that world or whatever at all. And it feels more like kind of Gainax in there, sort of, you know, fully curly into sort of Gurren Lagan mode way more than, than kind of uh, Gunbuster does. So I, I like it. I have a real soft spot for Die Buster, but I'm totally with you that if you're a big Gunbuster fan and you're thinking, oh, more of this universe, you're, you're going to be sorely disappointed. So from there, after our Gunbuster minute... Um, <laughs> So, Jonathan, there are a couple of things we did actually want to, to bring up with you, if that's okay. It's actually following on from our Escaflone podcast that we did Friday last week, because a couple Marvelous. of interesting tidbits came up. And one of the first ones was something I was completely unaware of, and it wasn't until Andy brought it up that I didn't even realise this was a thing. But the the, uh, the credit name of Hajime Yatate, if, if that's assuming how you actually pronounce it, being essentially a pseudonym for a number of different people involved in the in a production. Yeah, Are you able to tell us a little bit more about that at all? Yes, I can. Settle down for a very long story. Um, <laughs> okay, then. Okay, so, uh, yes, firstly, Hajime Yadate uh, does not exist. He, uh, he is a name that was dreamt up um, at Sunrise and shoved on some of their titles. Um, and the reason for it goes, uh, particularly at Sunrise, goes all the way back to before Sunrise was even founded. Now, there are several pseudonymous creators in the Japanese popular culture world. Hajime Yadate is not the only one. Uh, for example, uh, Toei have their own uh, pseudonymous creator name. Uh, a whole bunch of their Sentai shows are credited to somebody called Saburo Yatsute or Saburo Hatte, who does not exist. Um, and I think the reason behind that is they... they I think as we discussed last time I was on your podcast, the person who owns a creative work gets to cream off money from it until the end of time. So if it's been created as part of a corporate structure, it's much easier to just stick someone else's name on it because um, then you're not you know, handing out money left, right and centre to people. So uh, Saburo, Saburo uh, Hate or Saburo Yatsude, they didn't even know how to pronounce it. They kind of wrote it down, but they never actually decided how to pronounce it. And for a long time, people, people thought it was Saburo Yatte which is basically Dave, let's do it. It's kind of Japanese, you know, let's get on with it. Um, so up until 1999, Toei used that name on a lot of their works. And then after 1999, they actually, they came up with a different pseudonym. Um, Toei Animation, Toei Doga, is based in Oizumi in, uh, in Tokyo. And so they took that, Oizumi Toei Doga, and they changed it to Izumi Todo. And that is the name of the alleged creator of Pretty Cure, of Kyoso Giga, uh, of uh, Ojamajo Doremi, a whole bunch of shows. doesn't exist. Izumi Toro doesn't exist. I think we did an April Fool's once where she said she was a guest at a convention that wasn't happening because uh, <laughs> she doesn't exist. And that's not all. Koei, Ko Shibusawa, at Koei, who comes up with you know Nobunaga's ambition, doesn't exist, pseudonym. Um, and at TBS, uh, uh, a lot of their kind of samurai shows are credited to somebody called Shoko Hamura, who doesn't exist. In the case of Hajime Yarate, however, um, it's really tied up not just to ownership of a product, but to the history of Sunrise. Because Sunrise was founded in 1972 after Mushi production collapsed. So you have Osamu Tezuka's studio, the people that made Astro Boy, the people that made Jungle Emperor. And it was falling apart in the late 60s. And a number of people from Mushi ended up at Sunrise, uh, ended up founding what the studio that became known as Sunrise. And uh, I think, Andy, you were there when Ryoichi Takahashi was in, um, in Edinburgh. Yes, uh, indeed. 
and he and we had uh, forgotten loves anime and we had a fantastic sunday morning session with him where he talked about his career which was absolutely mind-blowing and one of the things that he's just said in passing in that session was if you want to understand what sunrise is it's mushy pro without tezuka because when they set up Sunrise, one of the things that these these people whose company had collapsed underneath them and, and, and into terrible debt and were stuck picking up the pieces, they said, we are not going to make the mistakes that Mushy made. And one of those mistakes was putting creative people in management. And so you get uh, this you get this idea with the story of Mushy, which is told in a wonderful book called The Rise and Fall of Mushy Pro by um, a guy called Aichi Yamamoto. Um, that you know, Tezuka is just going is going wildly Donald Trump off the rails when he's running his company. He's putting his own money into it. He's running hu- up huge debts. He's lying about how much it costs to make anime. This is what we call Tezuka's curse. I mean, one of the reasons that anime always have to come attached to product placement, always have to come attached to foreign sales, is that you've got Tezuka lying to TV companies about how much it costs to make anime. So. He's making all of these terrible mistakes. Mushy Pro goes bankrupt. And the people at Sunrise go, okay, well, what we're going to do is we're going to have managers managing stuff. We'll have people who have degrees in management and accountancy running the company. And the creatives will be walled off from us with barbed wire and cattle prods. No creatives near this. Because we don't want people getting all airy-fairy and arty-farty about what is essentially a business to sell things. So very, very hard-nosed decisions at Sunrise. There were, there were other ones as well about how they paid their animators and how they arranged their, uh, their workflow schedule. But the no creators in management was a really important thing. And, of course, then you have this issue where the boss, in, uh, in fact, particularly after 1987, when their third managing director, uh, A.G. Yamaura, took over, the boss is sitting there in a conference room and he says, what about if we did a show about a robot that transformed and a talking cat and a mobile phone that's magic or, or, or whatever? You know, the kind of ideas that Japanese company bosses pull out of their asses and that we end up, you know, watching five years later. If the boss of the company says that, he's just become a creative. He's basically, you know, he's going to have to commit ritual suicide now because he's just gone and created something. And so Eiji Yamaura started using the name Hajime Yadate. He said, okay, I'm, I'm just saying this, right? Everyone's going to get together. We're all going to work together on this. We'll come up with something together, but we don't want to credit it to a bunch of blokes in a pub. We'll credit it to someone called Hajime Yadate. Uh, and, and the benefit, and the extra benefit of that is, is that if someone like super, super famous comes along, which is a big 1980s thing, that they, they bring in people from outside the field to direct episodes or create things. If someone super famous comes along, all, we, all they can do, the best they can hope for, is to share credit with this made-up person. So we'll bring in Shinichiro Watanabe to make Cowboy Bebop, but he's got to share credit with Hajime Yadate. And when Keiko Nobumoto writes a script, it's not hers. She doesn't get to profit from it. You know, we'll pay her and everything, but this is Hajime Yadate's thing. And Hajime Yadate is creaming off the money from Cowboy Bebop in multiple foreign you know, um, territories, and that money is going into the company kitty. So that is a, you know, a huge, huge deal uh, with Sunrise. And it wouldn't surprise me as well. I mean, I I came up with, I think, four or five pseudonymous people. It wouldn't surprise me if there's another half dozen in the anime world that we just don't know about. And that's before we get into porn, where everyone uses a pseudonym. (laughs) So... Um, so, you know, it, it's a very, very interesting area. And in fact, it all dates back 
to uh, an event that happened on Jungle Emperor. So it must have been about 65 or 66. Um, because the, the people who were making anime just didn't expect it to have the potential that it now has. So uh, Masaki Suji, for example, talks about when he was a producer of 8-Man and the phone would ring and someone would say, we want to do an 8-Man coloring book. And he'd be, wow, that's a good idea. Why didn't we do that? Why don't we do that? Thank you. Bye. Um, and so you have this, you know, the, the idea of merchandising and the way that things can be merchandised and the way that anime can be monetized beyond an initial TV broadcast, even on video, is not something that people were really giving that much thought to in the 1960s. Because, you know, we're still 15 years away from the commercial availability of a video player. So when they did an LP, they did a long playing record of the music from Jungle Emperor. It sold 100,000 copies in Japan. It was the first anime soundtrack, if you will. Um, and uh, one of the song, one of the tunes on the album had lyrics. And so the people from the record company came to Mushi Pro and they said, OK, who wrote these lyrics? Because they get a cut of the royalties. And everyone's looking at each other going, who did it? Who did it? And it turns out Aichi Yamamoto wrote the lyrics in his lunch hour. Because <laughs> they said, we, we need a song that goes with this. So write a song. So he goes, oh, you know, Kimba, Kimba. Oh, sorry, no, Simba. No, no, Kimba. You know, and so he writes a, a song about whatever it was, Jungle Emperor, It's Fun in the Jungle, whatever. He, you know, did it in his lunch hour, sent it off, didn't think anything more about it. And now people are saying to him, well, there's 100,000 copies of this sold, so we probably owe you about five grand. He's like, brilliant, fantastic. And then the, the managers at Mushy say, no, 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 wait a minute. You did it in your lunch hour. You did it on company time. When you create something on company time, it belongs to the company. And he said, yeah, yeah, what part of lunch hour didn't you get? <laughs> <laughs> so this huge argument breaks out about whether or not a lunch hour constitutes company time or not um and then it goes into and then it turns out that i think by that point he'd put he'd logged 120 hours of unpaid overtime should overtime be over should be paid or not should he put it there or not anyway so there was a huge fight about it and in the end the management at mushy ruled which is basically tezuka ruled if you do it on company time it belongs to the company so ehi yamamoto never got the royalties from that song and and now if you work as a company, if you work in a corporation, it's, it's very common that the work that you do is work for hire and you do not own it when you walk away from that company. Um, and, you know, this, this is not just a, a Japan thing. It's, it's true all over the world. I've, I've done some work at a well-known company. They called me in for two weeks, incredibly well paid, talking them through how anime works and how and, you know, how the how it breaks down and, and what's required to, you know, do well in the anime world. They had me there for two weeks. They fired me. They brought in somebody else. They fired him. They brought me back. They had me for two weeks. They fired me. They just, you know, they, they bring in people as expert advisors, but the money that they pay is to compensate you for the fact that every idea you have on their dime belongs to them. So does that answer the question? <laughs> yeah, I think it does. Oh, no, Andy. actually, oh. no, no, I, I forgot something. So the other thing is, is where the name Yadate comes from. Uh, Saburo Hatte uh, the, is, is, is uh, Saburo Eight Hands, um, for, uh, who's the, uh, the Toei guy. And I've always assumed that's a World War II reference because there was a, uh, a slogan in Japan, which was for every soldier at the front, there are eight hands supporting him. But when it comes to Hajime Yadate, Yadate literally means ink horn. And it's a phrase used for your writing implements. 
if you're writing calligraphy. And uh, the term Yadate comes up in The Narrow Road to the Deep North, a collection of poems by Bashaw, where he says something like, oh, you know, I've, I've just taken out my writing implements for the first time. So basically the name Hajime Yadate means, you know, uh, number one writer bloke. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, now I'm done. I genuinely found that really fascinating. Andy, any questions or, or thoughts from your perspective? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's certainly fascinating stuff. I mean, have, have there, like you mentioned that one example, have there been any other kind of cases of blowback where creatives have kind of, you know, ended up being unhappy that they've sort of, you know, lost a credit to a pseudonym? Because especially, the thing that surprises me about this is the way it's kind of still being used because it feels like in 2020 in particular, everybody is far more sensitive about, crediting people's work correctly and ensuring that people are credited for what they do and so it's kind of surprising you know even stuff like love live sunshine you know hajime yatate is still used as, as the creative name there but like have there been any cases that we're aware of where people have kind of pushed back after the fact and said like hey like this was this was my brainchild or whatever you know can can i get some more credit slash money for this absolutely all the time um, the way that the the Japanese media work is very um, stratified and organized, and it's it's normally the case that um, people understand what they're getting into, um, and uh, one hopes that they're they're well remunerated. I mean, there's not unions as such, but to be a writer on anime, you tend to have to come in through one of the writing salons, which are basically writers' schools run by three or four famous screenwriters. And so they'll tell you what to expect and they'll tell you how it works and they'll tell you to, you know, shut up and keep working. Um, and, uh, you know, there are, there are, in fact, cases of writers working under multiple names just to hide the fact that they're writing for anime at once, you know? Um, so there's a bit of that going on. But there are many, many cases of... Uh, issues in design, of issues in plot, um, of issues in royalty payments. I mean, imagine what it's like to be Yoshiyuki Tomino to have had the idea for Gundam, you know, and then, you know, somebody makes Stardust Memories. Is his name even on Stardust Memory, except as, uh, except as you know, the original creator? But, you know, he still kind of, he should feel, you know, that he should get something for that, even if they've almost taken everything out of it. Um, there are all kinds of shenanigans behind the scenes with renaming of shows. Some of you may know Bubblegum Crisis suddenly became Bubblegum Crash. It oh, was, right. Okay, was, sorry. I, I thought you meant entirely so as and they were called something internally, but then were renamed oh, externally. No, no. Sorry. I, I mean, you know, they, they make, what, how, what is it, eight episodes of Bubblegum Crisis, and suddenly they change the name to Bubblegum Crash because no one can remember who owns the rights, and one of the production committee isn't talking to the other member of the production committee, and they have to change it just a little bit. We get things like New Fist of the North Star, where adding the word new in front of it means it's no longer Fist of the North Star, so the original manga publisher doesn't get a cut anymore. There's all kinds of weird stuff like that. There's something um, very, very obscure called RGB Adventure. Are you aware of this one? No. Um, it came out in 2006, and uh, I've just opened my anime encyclopedia uh, to look at it, though, because uh, it just fell apart. It absolutely fell apart. Um, and uh, the court case about it actually made it online. And this is very rare because in Japan they try and arbitrate before they get to court. If you get to court in Japan, it's considered adversarial and a loss of face. 
So unlike America, where everyone will lawyer up immediately, even if they're just discussing a contract, in Japan, you try and arbitrate before you get to court. But the RGB Adventure case did actually make it to court. And it was absolutely fantastic because you can actually get the judge's ruling online and you can read about um, what happened. You had managers there who were bringing in designers and animators and then telling them that the work they did belonged to them and their payment would be room and board. So they were actually not being paid at all. They were just being given a bowl of noodles a day and a, and a, you know, and a, and a bed to sleep in and, and then told that everything belonged to them. Um, and so, in fact, I've just seen the, the, I wrote the entry in the, in the anime encyclopedia. It actually says here, you know, it's in order to avoid cases such as this, that several companies assign copyright to house pseudonyms such as Hajime Yadate. Um, because this, this this case, you know, just just kind of blew all out of uh, proportion, and uh, and of course the other the other kind of sticking point. Well, there, there are all kinds of sticking points. One of them is is who owns the computer code. Um, when you animate something, the computer code itself is intellectual property, and normally there's some kind of um, there's some kind of stipulation that it's okay to make a cartoon with it. <laughs> but you know, technically. Uh, unless you've kind of checked all the small print on that, and particularly if you're using peremptory code that uh, the company has made specially for their own use, then maybe the company has some say in that. And then you get things like uh, licenses. I mean, there's a case right now, which is on the front page of Anime News Network. There's a computer game, the name of which escapes me. It's oh, the, the Cooking Mama game. Cooking Mama. And the licensor is in dispute with the, uh, with the software maker because the licensor said, we didn't approve this. You made changes that we didn't like. And, and, and the release company is saying, well, we made changes you didn't like, but you weren't actually authorized to make, to, you didn't have any say in what we did with them because we'd actually met all the goals that you set for us. And we came up with some new ideas that we put in. And if you don't like them, that's unfortunate, but you don't actually have a leg to stand on in stopping us doing this. And the licensor said, yes, we do. It's our license. Um, so, so that is unfolding right now. So, so, the, so the answer is yes, this happens all the time. And that's another very good reason why a company that is managerially focused rather than producer focused or, or creator focused is going to say, well, let's just invent a name. And, and, you know, and, and finally, on that point, we all know what happened at Kyoto Animation last year. Um, you do get nut jobs. You do get people who fixate on certain creators and stalk them and chase them around. It's much easier uh, for everyone's, you know, sleeping at night if the creator doesn't exist. Yeah. You know, no one, no one's going to set fire to Hajime Yadate's house. They can't find him. Genuinely fascinating stuff. And also, like, to, to sort of going back to the, the, the Gundam point that you made, because it actually, it's something I hadn't actually fully considered until you just said it, but yeah, like, Yoshiyuki Tamino is literally credited on every single Gundam property ever, just noted as originally created by. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, see, Tamino was working um, uh, before the third president of Sunrise kind of really put a stop to that. In fact, he was working uh, uh, under... I want to say the first president of Sunrise, who actually died tragically young. He was only in his 40s when he died in the early 80s. So what you get with Tamino is what happens if you don't have a pseudonym. You know, mm. If Tamino had been five or six guys in a room saying, well, how do we have robots? And why don't they do this? And why don't they do that? And no one could remember really who did it. Then he wouldn't have that kind of power. What I find interesting about Tamino, actually, is that even if he'd never created Gundam, he would still be a really central figure in the history of animation but in Japan. But no one talks about his work in storyboarding, which is really exemplary. Um, 
And and uh, I think Andy and Jeremy, you were both there at Scotland Loves Anime last year when we had Trigger in the room. Mm. And we had a big Trigger panel. And they were talking about how there are these work groups at Trigger. There's like a work group and there's one with a there's one called Fan Boat or something. And, one, and they've got these weird names. And I asked them where these names come from and why they have to have these kind of Venn diagrams of who does what at the company. And their explanation, which no one took seriously, but was incredibly serious, was that when they came up with the idea for, I think it was panty and stocking, it might have been, it might have been something else, but they came up with the idea and they were all in the pub together and they were all drunk and they couldn't remember who thought of what. So they basically had to create a new corporation, including everyone who was in the pub that night. And that would be the work group that came up with the idea for whatever anime it was. So you also have this problem. So, so, so Trigger have gone in the opposite way. They credit everybody, you know, even, you know, some drunken tramp who's wandered in and isn't even in the company. He gets to be, you know, in, included if he was in the pub that night. So uh, not that I'm suggesting that any of the people at Trigger are drunken tramps. But so, um, you know, th th there are all these issues with ownership. And the thing is, is that when you live in a kind of in a fan world, in a fanish world of convention going and people and, and enthusiastic amateurs who create for fun, Ownership isn't really that big an issue. Um, but when you are in, uh, I mean, the, the well-known company, which I shall not name, but may have involved plastic bricks um, that I was working for, um, they would have these pitch meetings of what their new theme would be each year. So the, the eight different units of the company from all over the world, they get together in this big pitch Olympics. And the company whose pitch wins gets to define the, the line that the whole corporation takes for the next year, you know, it could be cowboys or, you know, ninja or, you know, whatever. Um, and that's worth a billion dollars. That's, you know, factories all over the world. That's huge design contracts. That's a, and so whoever's thought of that, you know, is, is looking at a huge amount of money. Um, and, you know, corporations want to protect that, that wealth and individual creators, um, they don't necessarily, you know, find themselves working on toy lines that make a billion, but, you know, there's this kind of tragedy of creative work where you can write 10 books and, and one of them is the one that makes your fortune, but that's the one that you did for a flat fee instead of a royalty, you know? So, um, it's, it's a real roulette wheel in the creative arts. And, uh, you know, different companies have found different ways of, of coping with it. Trigger's way is going to cause all kinds of lawsuits down the line, I'm sure, uh, for them, because there'll always be someone in the pub saying, no, I thought of the talking ocelot, you know, and you're like, no, you didn't. It was Dave. And there'll be a whole and, you know, there'll be a court case about it and it will come down to who had how many drinks on one particular night in December. God, and I suppose to, to, to sort of segue into the next topic that we wanted to to, to touch on with you, yeah. we mentioned obviously you know Trigger had come over to Scotland Loves Anime, and one of the other things that we talked about on the Escaflone podcast was how that the Escaflone movie in many ways came to be because of the popularity of the series outside of Japan. It was perhaps considered a massive hit worldwide, excluding Japan. So are there any other examples perhaps you could touch on of properties be it films or tv series where they weren't as big or perhaps didn't hit land as well in japan but worldwide they they smashed it yes once again many many examples and i i will say as a cautionary measure is just because someone tells you that something's a smash worldwide doesn't mean that it is there's Indeed. a performative there's a performative quality to a lot of of uh, japanese press where they will have a premiere of a film in a foreign country 
to make it look cool for the Japanese. And, you know, and that film might be on in two cinemas and, you know, it might be three men and a dog that show up, but they won't film it that way. And, and then they'll say, as seen at the Cannes Film Festival, as shown in California, um, there was a big dust up at an at a academic event in Norwich uh, a few years ago when someone was talking about uh, Hatsune Miku and saying that she was in a sellout concert tour of America. And unfortunately, she, she said it in front of Hugh David, who had his phone on and could Google uh while she was talking and he said it wasn't a well it wasn't a tour she did one concert at an american convention with a captive audience and they filmed it to make it look like it was a world tour um so so there are times when people are fooled by that and anyone who finds themselves writing about this should always bear that in mind but the thing is is that ever since astro boy anime has sought foreign money astro boy would not have happened without the money coming in from america um, and in fact, the reason that they were able to renew it for another 52 episodes was the Americans saying, yeah, we'll take more of this. And in fact, what really nobbled Astro Boy was that another, a year later, the Americans said, well, this is all great, but it's all in black and white. Can we have something in color? <laughs> and rather than go back to square one and make Astro Boy again, they started making Jungle Emperor instead in color, uh, because, you know, then the foreign money will come in. And this is Tezuka's curse. There has to be... Um, a merchandise tie-in normally and there has to be uh well everyone hopes there'll be foreign money and japanese studios are very happy to take foreign money and make something that's never released in japan at all you know we we, we have you know examples of that I, I, or we have things like ulysses 31 which kind of limped out half-heartedly in japan years and years after it came out in france so um you have shows like that um and the level to which the Japanese want or need foreign money is constantly fluctuating. It's normally somewhere around the 10% mark. 10% of the budget for any show, they will assume it's going to come in from abroad. But, you know, Ghost in the Shell, for example, was 30% funded by Manga Entertainment. That's the only way they could afford to make a film, you know, that expensive um, by 1995. Um, Gonzo, in the early 2000s, so before the big crash, Gonzo had this policy that they did not get out of bed unless 50% of the money was coming in from a foreign source. So you get anime companies in that period in particular going to foreign companies with two bits of art and a one-page synopsis and saying, we're going to make this show. Do you want to invest now? Because that way you won't have to fight for the rights when it's really big. Unfortunately, of course, sometimes it wasn't really big. And by the time you found that out, you'd already spent all your money on it. So there are kind of examples like that. The ones that are notable for being more successful outside Japan than in, um, I can think of three examples off the top of my head, and I'm sure I can come up with many, many more given time. Um, one of them is Dirty Pear. Dirty Pear was taken off the air in Japan, um, but you have these, uh, at, at the various kind of media shows, you have these sales sheets, and and, and so... If you're writing an anime encyclopedia, which I don't recommend, but if you do, <laughs> what, what you must never do is use film uh, uh, market sales sheets to, to work out how many episodes there are. Because on the film market sales sheets, they lie. They'll tell you something's got 26 episodes when it's only got 13. Because they figure if someone says, okay, we'll buy it, they will run away and make 13 more episodes. 
And that's what happened with Dirty Pear. It was taken off air in, in Japan, and then the Italians came along and said, we want more of this Dirty Pear stuff. These girls in bikinis fighting crime in space, it's super fun for Italians. <laughs> so, so the Japanese made another, I think, 10 episodes of Dirty Pear, which they just sent to Italy. So that just kept on going as normal in Italy for wherever it was, 36 episodes or something. And what was released in Japan as the Dirty Pear OVAs were actually kind of extra TV shows that they'd made for the Italians. Um, similarly, uh, Trigon. Trigon came and went in Japan and uh, did okay. Um, and then you kind of get this kind of sonic boom with anime that, you know, a few years later it'll come up in another, in another country. And Trigon did particularly well um, in the Spanish-speaking market um, and in America. Uh, in uh, in the United States of America, and so our very first guests at the very first Scott and Loves Anime were uh, uh, the, the director and producer of Trigon, and they were there showing off the Trigon film. Which I mean, I can't remember what year Trigon the TV series came out. It must have been was it two thousand? I feel like it might have been a bit later than that. It was definitely uh, definitely in, in the 2000s, wasn't it? I'm well, yeah. I'm looking it up right now while I talk. But anyway, so <laughs> the, the I, yeah, luckily I do have a very big book. 1998 was Trigon, yeah. so it was 13 years later. That's a long time in anime years. That's enough time for someone to be born and grow up and become a fan of Trigon. So that's a huge gap. Um, and this is basically a forgotten show in, in Japan. You, you know how swiftly it goes in Japan. The, mm. When you've got a 13-episode core, you're basically every three months, there's a completely new set of shows to get obsessed with. So, you know, that's a long time in dog years. But nevertheless, Trigon the movie was basically brought about because people in Brazil and Argentina and the United States were very keen on it. And there was enough of... Um, an interest there for them to say, okay, well, we'll, we'll go for it. And, and, and they loved it. They were very excited about it. But Nishimura, the director, he was a little bit kind of wistful about it because he said, you know, I've forgotten what this all was. You know, I, it's been, it's been so long, you know, th this was, you know, however many months of my life, 13 years ago. And then people ask me questions and expect me to know, you know, what happened in episode seven and what does that thing mean? He's like, I can't remember. It's been so long. Um, so that's, you know, a bit weird. Um, so, yeah, lots of, you know, examples like that. Um, the third example that I will give, because it's a particular favorite of mine, um, and it's one I like to use to beat the media over the head with, is Legend of the Overfiend. Ah, uh, yes, and it's Kidoji. Yes, Orotsuki Doji, Chojin Densetsu, Legend of the Overfiend, which uh, it was released in Japanese cinemas and pornographic anime um, tends to do quite well in the Japanese rental market because it gets rented four times more often than other videos. So back in the days when you would go into a shop and actually rent a video, if the video shop owner bought hentai, they, would, they could normally expect it to be rented four times rather than once um, or, you know, or 20 times rather than five or whatever. Mm. So it was a good investment for them. And, and, and the fact is, is that you know, people aren't buying it. They're paying, you know, 100 yen and they're taking it home and watching it and then they're bringing it back. It's not sitting on their shelves. You get something like Legend of the Overfiend, um, which did well enough in Japan. And then you take it to Britain where it sells 60,000 copies. <laughs> and, it's, and it's held up 
as an example of what Japanese people watch. I mean, literally, there was a Jonathan Ross documentary, which it wasn't his fault, but they they were they had a picture of a child watching television and they matted in a scene from Orozki Doji on the television <laughs> as if to say, this is what kids are watching in Japan. The BBFC said these films are shown in clubs full of men. I don't I don't even know what that means. But that was in the BBFC report that year. So you have something like Legend of the Overthing, which is entirely unrepresentative of the people of Japan. Take my word for it. I've never seen a tentacle all my time in Japan. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, and, you know, it's the foundation of the manga nasty era. It was hugely influential, not just in what people thought anime ought to be, um, but it was the subject of a huge tug of war between Kiseki and Manga Entertainment. You know, Kiseki eventually wrested the rights to Overfiend 3 away from, from Manga. There was a huge controversy over Overfiend 4 because the BBFC ripped out 60% of it. It was a, a three-episode OAV and they only let the third episode come out because the first two episodes were so horrible. Um, so, you know, that was a big issue as well. Um, and, uh, you know, and people think that this, but the, and the other thing that people tend to forget about Legend of the Overfiend is that for Mango Entertainment and for Kiseki, the money it brought in gave them a confidence to invest in more anime. And so whatever you think of Legend of the Overfiend, and I think it's horrible, it paid for, you know, a whole bunch of other things. Um, which were, you know, some of the softer fan favorites, some of the diversification of the market, the, you know, a, a company's interest in staying in the anime business for longer. It's like, well, this thing here has made us millions. Let's do something else. So, um, but the, uh, I don't have the actual Japanese sales figures for Legend of the Overfiend, but I'm betting you it did far better abroad than it ever did in Japan. That, that wouldn't at all surprise me just because of the way things work out and as they work. Yeah. And I, and I think um, I think we know better than most. Um, I, I get into trouble for saying this because people just refuse to believe it's true. But there are many anime released in Japan, the audience for which would fill a single cinema. Um, many anime now are made for a bespoke crowd of hardcore otaku who will be buying the super, super collector's edition that's £400 and the super special, um, you know, lucky gonk that comes with it um, and all the various art books and whatever. But the actual number of discs sold is very low. And, so, and someone always says, oh, yes, but such and such an anime sold 80,000. Like, I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about the very, very small ones that basically would have used to used to have been sold to rental stores but now they're basically bespoke they're almost crowdsourced they'll say to you okay if enough people order this thing we'll make it and the trouble is with those shows as marco pelleteri very controversially um said in in one of the books we reviewed on the on the blog this year or last year actually he said the trouble is is that what the, what these shows then do is they try and sell them abroad you get a show that only a few hundred Japanese people want to buy, and then you expect thousands of people in a foreign country to be interested in it. But it's a niche interest. Whatever it is, and it's going to be niche it's not going to be something that you can expect thousands of foreigners to like. And this, this was a big problem originally with when foreign anime companies started investing in television. Because you go to the rights fair, and the Japanese would say, okay, we've got this show, it's on Japanese television. And it's X thousand pounds. Will you buy it? And they go, oh, well, if it's a television show, it must be really good. And they'll buy it. And then the Japanese will say, ah, oh, except when we say it was on television, it was actually on at two o'clock in the morning. 
and it was only watched by night watchmen and insomniac students um and basically it's a it's a video but we're telling people to bring their own tape and record it off the telly you know i mean that that's there was a lot of late night anime that really fitted that paradigm and then they're trying to sell them abroad as if they are big prime time television series um and in fact as far as i'm aware there is no anime in prime time now because chibi miracle chan and um what's it called crayon shinchan and says i say they're all on saturdays now so they're actually off prime time um so 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 there's that as well there, there are many so-called fan favorites uh are arguably um more popular abroad than they are in japan but of course that's something that no one really wants to discuss because the last thing you want to do if you work in marketing is say hey everyone buy the thing that no one in japan wanted because that's that's not the, the the narrative that you want to tell you want to say this is big in japan this is huge this is a big trend and everyone's really excited about it join in the fun shared by you know 1000 other guys <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it is a genuinely fascinating thing just that the perception and the way that that I say gets translated over here but the way it, it's just perceived by so many people and what people just expect is the truth yeah. versus what's well, actual reality there are always exceptions and there's always going to be someone on Twitter who pulls me up and go oh you forgot that thing and you forgot that thing um, but that is, you know, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating area and, and the, the corporate angle of it and the, the legality of it and the, 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 the industrial quality of it is what I find really fascinating. That's what's always interested me is, you know, if anime is a widget factory, how do you make the widgets and how do you sell the widgets and how do the widgets work? One thing I will add, however, is there is a crucial missing component in the foreign attention pattern. And that is China. Because anime has a following in China. It has a huge following in China. Thousands and thousands of people. It's estimated that if everyone in China who watches pirated anime paid 100 yen for it, the, the revenue of the anime business would go up 20 times. And that's not based on vague figures. That's based on they, they fingerprinted some titles and then saw where they went digitally and, and kind of followed them around the interwebs. Um, so, you know, there is a large number of fans in China. However, a large number of a few, you know, thousands and thousands of people in China is a drop in the ocean. You know, when a city like Wuhan has 11 million people, you know, 20,000 people is not a big number. So there was a, a, a big scandal in China uh, about 13 years ago when there was a survey of what the most popular cartoons were on, I think it was Shanghai television. And it turned out that the top eight were all Japanese. Um, mm. And so... Uh, ever since then, there has been this kind of war on Japanese cartoons in China. They've taken them off the air. They've tried to police their appearances on uh, streaming servers and uh, and um, the, the various YouTuber-like things that they have in China. Um, Yoku, for example. Um, they've, they've issued a list of banned anime that you cannot see because they are so subversive. Ironically, half of them were made in China. Uh, so it's only- <laughs> You know, I was looking down the credit list. I think one of them was uh, Eden of the East or something, and 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 there are like three or four Chinese production companies on the credits there. <laughs> I'm thinking, so this is this is you know we can't show this on television, but we'll take your money to make it. Um, so uh, so there's there's a lot of kind of the 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 way that anime is perceived in China is is, is a very interesting area. Uh, I've spent a lot of time trying to get Chinese academics to work with me about it, but none of them want the name Japan on their resumes. 
Um, uh, but what you find is that if I'm in a Chinese academic community, I'll run into a dozen people who are Naruto fans or, or fairy tale for some bloody reason. Uh, Naruto fairy tale, One Piece, um, a few Bleach. Gundam people. Uh, there's a bit of bleach going on, a bit of bleach. Um, so the stuff that's kind of re- relatively mainstream in Japan has its followings uh, in kind of secret Chinese fandom, but they're not paying for it. That's the thing. Hmm. Owing to the way that the government has entirely restricted access to it legally, um, unless it's a Ghibli film or one of the very rare anime that kind of sneaks into cinemas, or as a legal release, basically, uh, it's a it's a pirates only you know industry. So you have this huge kind of potential fandom, but you've always got this kind of political albatross around your neck. That every time there's saber rattling about some obscure island, the Chinese and the Japanese are refusing to deal with each other again, and it all kind of falls apart again. There was a big problem with uh, God, what's it called in in this corner of the world? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, the there was a. <laughs> The, the director of that film honestly thought that it was a, a heartwarming tale of adversity and you know peace and stuff, um, as indeed it was. Unfortunately, it's about a Japanese girl who lives in a port where the Japanese navy you know hangs around, and Chinese audiences weren't really up for that. Um, and so they were kind of doing these. Uh, they were doing the, the publicity tour in, in Hong Kong, even. And uh, I think the director was quite shocked that more people weren't showing up for the press screenings. And, you know, and no one was really prepared to say to him, they, they just don't like you. <laughs> um, it's n- nothing personal. It's not your fault. I'm sure it's a great film and everything. But expecting the Japanese, expecting the people of Hong Kong to shed a tear for a Japanese war movie is is um, is pushing your luck, I think. <laughs> um and in fact, uh, the and so so basically, the you know that they were expecting the older generation to like the film and the younger generation to like the film, and it's supposed to be for, for a film of all ages. But of course, only the younger people who were Hong Kong anime fans were showing up, and you know, everybody over forty just wasn't interested. Um, and so that was a bit of a surprise for them. So you, you have that issue as well that you'll have, uh, particularly when it comes to China. You get, um, I mean, I mean Haku Jarden, the first color. Um, Japanese animated feature was it's, it's a Chinese story and it was deliberately chosen as a Chinese story because they figured hey we can we can push it into the Chinese market there's billions of them that would be fantastic unfortunately for them just as they were finishing Haku Jarden there was a uh, an incident in Nagasaki where a Japanese right winger tore down a Chinese flag in a, in a in a department store and as a result of this the Chinese shut down all trade and 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 they couldn't sell the film in China, so you know there there's all these kind of you know roulette spins and you know wheels of fate that come with you know releasing a film. You never know what it's going to be. It could be a nutter tearing down a flag in a department store, and suddenly your entire business model is you know going going down the swanee. Yeah, well, I mean it's a bit of a poor example, I suppose. But there was that. What was that recent film? Was it was it called The Hunt, where that was meant to get a release in cinemas, and then I think some big event happened in America, and then it just got pulled from everywhere for a while. I haven't followed that. Well, that's the right wing one, isn't it? It's the one where the the evil liberals are trying to kill all the like people are being hunted around. They were like captured for a game or something. I can't remember exactly. Andy, you might remember the title of it, but I think it was called The Hunt. 
Yeah, I don't, I don't recall. So there's been a couple of kind of similar things recently where I, I know they've been pulled for some reason or another. Mm. What was that Seth Rogen film that like offended a country? Oh, that was, was the one it? about Korea. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Korea one, yeah. The the interview, I think it was called. Interview, yes. I I did see it. Uh, it's one of those cases, a bit like the Satanic Verses, where you think if you hadn't tried to ban it, nobody would have heard of it. Yeah. Like ironically, that film got far more publicity than it probably ever would have done because of that. Yeah. But but better marketing department were happy that day. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was going to say, like, on, on a tangent from that, I mean, what what are your thoughts on kind of the Chinese animation industry as it is kind of, you know, not working on anime productions? Because it seems like there's a lot more effort being put into their own kind of works now to try and, and capture that sort of market. I mean, have you had much kind of exposure to that? Yes, yes, I have. And, and, and in fact, there's a whole set of uh, pieces on the Anime Limited blog uh, about the Chinese animation business. Every time someone writes a book about it and kind of complains that it's not working, um, there is a. Uh, I mean, this is this is a, 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 a an answer that is too long even for me to give. So I'll try and give you a, sh- a shorter version than I would normally. Um, there are some serious systemic issues within the Chinese animation business um, that are really hampering its creativity. And you get some, you know, amazing uh, projects that are hampered by fear of censorship by the brain drain abroad by the sheer amount of work on other people's cartoons that the chinese undertake you know if you're if you're working on eden of the east you don't have time to make your own thing um but you're still putting food on the table um and so uh yeah there there are um there are some important issues to do with really how creativity works in the Chinese business. Um, and I, there's a review that I've written on the Anime Limited blog of a book by someone called, I think, Rolf Giesen, I think his name is, which is about uh, Chinese, I think it's called Chinese animation. And he says uh, that, you know, he hears the same conversation over and over from um, would-be producers in China, which is where do you get your ideas from? Like, they think there's a bucket that you can, you know, pick an idea out of. Or, you know, there's a guy who said, I want to set up a theme park that goes with a really famous, you know, cartoon character. Can you come up with a really famous cartoon character for me? <laughs> and and he's saying, that's not how it works. You know, the, there's there's a reason the Japanese are so good at this. Um, and there, there's this kind of this, this barrier to creativity um, for all sorts of reasons. And, and, and the reason I'm reluctant to answer at any great length is that I'll have to talk to her for a very long time not to come off sounding like a racist again. But um, there's this, you know, heavy, heavy push in China for people to be medical, technical engineering. You know, that's that's what you're put your your push for. for you know, it, it's, it's a complete about face from from the early 1900s when everyone had to know poetry and art and calligraphy. Now, you know, if you want to get ahead in in Chinese politics or in Chinese business, you've got to have a hard nosed vocational degree. Um, so the kind of people who go into the creative arts, as they are often in in the Western world as well, tend to be richer. Um, tend to be from more privileged backgrounds. Um, I, I met a girl in Xi'an uh, who was a, a, her, her family were kind of party aristocracy, basically. And when I say party aristocracy, I don't mean, well, hey, party poppers and glitter. I mean, like the party. Um, 
and uh, and she became an animator. And, and I was just imagining, you know, her granddad, who was a general in the People's Liberation Army, saying, "So, what are you going to do when you leave school? Are you going to become like a party cadre? Are you going to, you know, run an oil company?" She's like, "No, no, I'm going to make cartoons." <laughs> um, so you can imagine. Actually, maybe you can't imagine the kind of pressure that that children are under to succeed. I mean, don't forget, we're also we're still only just coming out of the one-child policy. So you've got an entire generation of kids uh, who are obliged in some way to consider having to support four grandparents and possibly now two children of their own. So it's the heaviest economic burden on any generation in Chinese history. And uh, the pressure to succeed is, you know, get a degree in accountancy get a degree in engineering it is not become an animator because that will make you rich because i don't think animation does make you rich in china um so uh there are all kinds of things there's the brain drain there's the censorship pressure there's the lack of attractiveness of the career um all, all and 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 the very basic fact that the chinese tv networks even though they are crowing all the time about the successes that chinese animation is enjoying in the 2010s they are avoiding the elephant in the room, which is that these successes are only possible when you've thrown away all the foreign stuff. You know, the Chinese animation in China is not competing on a level playing field because the Japanese stuff that was the most popular has been excluded. So they'll make a film and then they'll release it on the international market and it, it'll get, you know, middling mediocre reviews and nothing changes. Um, you know, I don't want to disparage the animators of china there's there's some amazing work coming out of china you look at big fish and begonia uh, there's some very interesting stuff going on in that film for example um but you know whether or not it really is the kind of thing that can compete in an international framework uh, or indeed if it's even possible bearing in mind how steep the learning curve has had to be in chinese animation we talk about the history of chinese animation you'll try and date it back to the wan brothers in 1943 but actually basically the cultural revolution just stopped everything and it's had to reset to zero um so although there is a long history of Chinese animation, and you can, and indeed I have, programmed an entire film festival program, you know, demonstrating it, what we're dealing with in the modern world is uh, material that both is and isn't competing with Japan, if that makes sense. It thinks it's not competing with Japan, and then in the international market, Japan is exactly what it's competing with, as well as Disney. And so that creates, um, you know, all kinds of, you know, new pressures on the Chinese industry, um, which is still kind of struggling to get through. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating stuff. I mean, um, I don't know if Anime Limited has ever looked at any Chinese works. Um, whenever something interesting pops up, I do send it along to Andrew, um, but it's normally not something that I think the has yet justified the attention of uh, of Anime Limited, certainly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of you know. I, I think from from things I've seen more recently, like the the technical level in terms of the actual quality of animation has certainly kind of come on leaps and bounds. But it is kind of, I guess, it's the duality of, of you know maybe the the stories and the narrative aren't always there. And we we also kind of I guess from our part from our part kind of struggle with the issue that anime fans are very focused on wanting to see Japanese cartoons and anything yeah. outside of that purview is kind of still kind of looked down upon somewhat, you know, even things like Castlevania, yeah. which did very well from us, there's still very much a, a feeling of like, well, this isn't really anime. And it's like, yeah. you know, people, people are very focused on that distinction, even when those boundaries are kind of becoming blurred in, in a lot of ways. 
Yeah, and I think uh, brain drain is a really crucial issue here as well, because um, every time Chinese animation produces a world-class animator, Pixar swoops in and gives him a job, <laughs> you know? Um, and uh, it's not just Pixar. It's, you know, DreamWorks, and it's you know, a whole bunch of anime companies and a whole bunch of Korean companies that are thinking they want somebody in there. Um, and, and so... Every time you, you, uh, and so that is a, a real kind of Faustian pact that the, that the, the Chinese have to deal with. They, uh, there, there are many Chinese animators, don't ask me to name them, working for other countries. And this was a particularly big issue in, uh, uh, at the very end of the 20th century because, um, there was a huge number of animators in China. I mean, I, th I think. I think there are about 3,000 animators working in China at the end of the 1990s because they were doing subcontracting sub work for the Japanese from the from the 80s onwards. Um, the moment Hong Kong was incorporated within China, huge numbers of Chinese animators just flocked south to Shenzhen, which is just over the border from Hong Kong, and they got jobs doing things like you know the the identity logo, the the animated logos for news programs and and TV stations and stuff, and they were working in adverts and they were subcontracting for Hong Kong companies on foreign cartoons, but you know that just kicked the heart out of the actual Chinese animation business in 1997. Um, so you know that's uh, that's a thing to bear in mind as well. All genuinely incredibly fascinating stuff. And I think on that note, everybody, we are going to draw this show to a close. Jonathan, thank you very much for for coming back on and and, and gracing us with your time and and waxing lyrical about those subjects. Genuinely, really, really fascinating stuff. And um, I suppose that it's the perfect time to to let people know what you've got going on or what what's your latest book based endeavor. Oh, well, uh, in the last two weeks, I haven't written another book. So, oh, uh, Jonathan, still, come on. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so, no, Brief History of Japan is still out there. And uh, the uh, I was just talking to the publisher of the Healthy Japanese Drinking Guide today. Um, that was supposed to come out in the autumn, but for various reasons with which we are all familiar, plus the fact that they really think it's a January book. And they'll be, what? They'll be, well, basically, it's, it's, it's a book... It's a book about being a high-functioning alcoholic and trying not to drink yourself to death. So January is the ideal time to release it. Um, <laughs> During a time uh, that many people call dry January. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because it, it's, a, it's, it's like one... Of, I may have said this last time, so I'll keep it brief. But it's, it's like a kind of a book that helps you give up smoking. It kind of talks you through the physiological effects of alcohol and, and what it does to you. Um, and with some very odd Japanese stories attached to it. Like, for example... The fact that geisha um, would take leftover sake and rub it into their skin, um, and that's, that's why they've all got such fantastic skin because it turns out it's full of amino acids. And so, a sake company in Japan uh, decided to make skin sake, an actual cosmetic product, by getting sake and letting it really over ripen, as it were, for an extra six months. So it's absolutely full of amino acids. It's almost undrinkable, but very good for your skin. Unfortunately, it's got a 45% alcohol content, so you could only sell it in an off-license, which is not the place that <laughs> ladies go to, to buy, um, to buy you know, skin cream. So then they had to go back to the drawing board and make an alcohol-free sake for skin, which is what they did. So all kinds of fun stories like that. And that will be out in January, but that's a way off yet. So, so yes, Brief History of Japan and Brief History of China are still the two you know, big books out there. But, you know, looking at the way things are on Amazon right now, um, 
uh, I can see my Nielsen sales on, on Amazon.com. So I can actually see physically how many books I'm selling in America. Um, and while Kindle's still nice and buoyant, paper sales are dropping through the floor at the moment. And if they're dropping through the floor for me, they must be for, for, for almost everybody else as well, unless you've got the, the lock-in coloring book on your, on your uh, resume. Yeah, and I mean, I think with Amazon in particular, because they've been prioritizing essential shipments, which apparently books are are, are not. Like, I, I think a lot of a lot of places have seen similar kind of downturns because they're simply not shipping stuff out. So, you know, why why would you buy from Amazon right now when you're not sure, you know, when when something's actually going to be dispatched? Mm, yeah. Well, Jonathan, once again, thank you very much for coming on. Andy, we're going to be back on Monday, correct? Uh, yes, yes, we should be. Hopefully, all being well. Indeed, so you can expect more random base chatter on what we've been watching over the weekend, and I assume as well another Animal Crossing update because why not? Yes, yeah, very, very important business on my on my part. <laughs> Folks, thank you very much for listening. We've been Team All the Anime signing out, and have a good weekend. Bye, everyone. Bye.